0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Well, we are, have a lot to cover today as we complete um, chapter 10 of Hebrews. And so I just want to kind of say a few things right up front. Um, one is that there is no big idea this morning, uh, and so don't be waiting on that. 2 um, we're going to spend a lot of time in the first few verses, and then we're going to move very quickly through the rest of it. So don't be thinking, oh my gosh, we've spent 20 minutes on verse 1, and we're never going to get out of here. We will move very quickly through the rest of it, I promise. In fact, maybe a little too quick, but uh, we'll have to, it's, a, it's a big chunk of Scripture that we're going to go through here this morning. So um, uh, buckle up, and we're going to, uh, to go through it here in a, in a way that honors the Lord, hopefully. All right, so where we here is last week. You, you you heard that that the last thing that we talked about was that there was an exhortation uh, by the author here to to stir one another up, right? As the body of Christ, he tells us that we need to stir one another up to love and good works, right? And there's this purpose why he's doing it, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because when I read this, as we transition from last week to this week, as like many times in scripture, the the contextually, we're continuing with where we were last week, and so I want to bring you back to that a little bit. But here, the author is going to, the, in the verses we're going to look at today, the author is going to give us what I believe are three serious warnings. In fact, I would argue that these warnings in Scripture are some of the greatest, most dire warnings and, and upfront warnings that we see in Scripture in any place in Scripture. And we're going to look at those three, and we're going to break them out a little bit. And, and I will tell you, the first verse here, in verse 26, um, has some interpretive challenges in how we kind of view it. And so, by God's grace, uh, I hope He gives me the wisdom to rightly discern this and, and help you understand what, what I think the Scripture's saying here. If you have a, another thought or, or comments on it, please come free and come see me over in the what we call the Pastor's Corner, the Connect Area after service. I'd love to be able to get your thoughts on it. And um, And then... After the three warnings, the very serious warnings, he's going to give us three strong encourage, encouragements. And now remember who he's speaking to here. Obviously, he's speaking to us, but he's, he's speaking to a group of people that are Hebrews that have, have hopefully left that way of the sacrificial system, And but he's going to challenge them that if they haven't left that, there's going to be dire warnings. But we're going to look at that, and we're going to parse that out, because I think there's another thing in there that we can take away from it for ourselves, and, and so... Um, Let's let's just dive in the scripture and let's let's look at it. All right, like I said, let's go back now though to verse chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. That's what we concluded with last week. And let's get this, this bridge over to our text today and see how they connect. Verse 24 of chapter 10. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglect not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what's he saying? Once again, to stir one another up to love and good works. And to do that, we have to be together. They just go together. You can't stir one another if you're not here, right? You've got to be in the building. You've got to be here on the Lord's Day. Be with the fellowship of the believers to be able to stir one another up. And we're stirring up one another to love and good works. And all the more as the day is approaching. So this idea of the day approaching, is Christ's return, the, the consummation of all things when God decides it's enough is enough and, and Christ is going to come and, and he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth and all that. And so he's saying, look, we need to be about this because as the closer that day gets, the more emphasis we need to have on that. And so that's where the mindset of the author here and he's trying to get across to his readers. Now, remember that in, in the letter there's not another verse or another chapter that starts. It's a continuous thing, right? So where we start to read here in verse 26 is connected to what's right before it. So let's see what the author has to say in 26. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So so now what is he saying here? How do we connect these two things? He said, we need to be stirring one another, meeting together, because the day of Christ is coming. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He said, so there's an urgency here, right? He says, if we're not doing this, we may continue to go on sinning. And if that happens, there's no, there's no sacrifice for our sins. He's connecting these two things. And so that's why he's urging the church, the body of Christ, to stir one another up so that we don't go on and keep sinning, that we don't live this life of perpetual willful sin in our life, right? Now, I will tell you that we're going to look at this verse, chapter 26, in several different ways, and we're going to draw two, really two big things out of it, two types of warnings. One clearly is contextually there. I can see it. It's, it's what the author is saying, and, and that's the most important one. But I think that we can pull some other things out of it that I think he's inferring, um, and so we're, we're going to look at that. The first one, though, here's the first warning. A warning of a complete rejection of Christ. A complete rejection of Christ. So what is he saying here? Let's look at the text. In fact, Go ahead and put the text back up, Jacob. For if we go on sinning deliberately. Now, let's look at that for a second. He's saying, for if we. Now, he's, he's put himself in the, with his readers. He's saying, if we, as a people, if we keep on doing this, as anyone, if we keep on sinning deliberately. Now, that word sinning, the way that it's read there, it's perpetual. It's not like, well, if I sinned right? If I, if I sin, right? No, it's like this, this is a lifestyle of, of willful sin. Here it says that it's deliberately. In the Greek, it could maybe even be translated willfully, gleefully, joyfully going sinning. I, I have no reservations. I have no convictions about it. I just want to live that life. I want to go that direction. That's kind of the idea here, right? If we do that, what does the author say there? It says, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, What is the knowledge of the truth? The knowledge of the gospel. Now, I think what he's saying there, he says, you've received it. Christ has come. I've told you. You, You've you've probably heard it for years now because it's been a while since the resurrection and ascension of Christ. He's, in his letter, he spent nine chapters, ten chapters, telling them about who Jesus is. They've received it. Now, when we say received it, it doesn't mean that they have become believers necessarily. In fact, I think he's saying that you, you've received it, but the question is, have you been born again? Have that, has that transformed you or not? If you go on sinning, probably hasn't. If you willfully go on sinning, because here's the question. Many of you are probably thinking right now, well, all sin is willful. <laughs> like, all sin is willful. We all decide it's an act of our will to do something, to lie, to do this, to do that, to to not love my wife the way I should, to to be selfish, to eat the last pizza, pizza, you know, whatever. It's all willful, right? Or to hide the M&Ms. Forgive me. Um, It's all willful. And so you say, well, pastor, does that mean that, I mean, all sin is willful? And so what does that mean? That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about every sin. He's talking about a lifestyle of perpetual Unconfessed, unrepentant sin—like this, this idea that I just continue in it and it's okay, and I don't, I don't, I don't feel bad about it. I want to do it. I, I, I don't. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna live this way. It's willfully. It's continual. It's a lifestyle of mine. It's not saying, "Oh, my flesh was weak and and I did this or I did that or I, I, I sin." No, that's not what he's talking about. We all have that in the Christian community. Christ has paid for that. We're hidden in Christ. We're, he's, he's our great high priest. His blood covers that. What the author is trying to say, and there's going to be two pieces to this. This first one, when he says a complete rejection of Christ, what he's telling his readers, I think what he's telling his readers, this is the contextual piece, the really big piece. He's saying, Look, I've told you that Jesus has come and fulfilled all of these prophecies, fulfilled all of the, the perfect, um, he's the perfect high priest. His blood was shed, he's the perfect sacrifice. If you reject that and you stay with the Old Testament rules, there no longer is a sacrifice remaining for you. So if you want to stay there, because he doesn't know who's a believer and who's not when he's writing here, right? Look, this morning as I preach and as we preach every Sunday, I don't know who's saved in this group and who's not. You don't know that I'm saved. Now, I hope you feel that I am, and I, many of you, I can say, no, I think that you love the Lord, I see that. But, but the thing is, is that we don't know. So here he's writing to a group of people who have professed Christ. Some of them have questioned whether that, that maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah, maybe, and, and maybe they should stay with the old. So he's just saying, look, he's just being very clear and saying, look, if you reject Jesus and keep on sinning and living that lifestyle, there is no, there remains no sacrifice for your sin. There's no, nothing coming after this. There's not a better sacrifice that's coming after this. It's it. Jesus has done this. And so that's an ominous warning to them. You stay here, there's no sacrifice for you. None. None. And you've heard the truth, is what he's saying. You've you've received it, you know it. And I will tell you, just for the record, if you've been coming to this church for very often, for even I would say the last month or two, I'm going to make the argument you've heard the truth. You've heard the truth of the gospel. You've heard that we're not saved by works. You've heard you're not saved by how much money you give. You're not saved by baptism. You're not saved by checking a box. You're only saved by Christ coming into your life and making you a new creation. To surrendering your life to him. That's it. That's a supernatural act that happens. Nothing else. Nothing else. And so we, we understand the truth. You've heard it. How have you responded to it? Have you responded to it? So, what do we see here about this warning of a complete rejection? Because obviously, some of those people did completely reject the gospel. They did. Who, who do we see that? The Pharisees. They knew that Jesus raised from the dead. That's why they had. The, that's why they had the guards lie. They knew. They didn't want to give up. They knew the truth, and they chose to lie. That is a complete rejection of the gospel. And basically what the author of Hebrews is saying is, look, there's no other remaining sacrifice for you guys. There's nothing coming later. There's not another do-over. There's not another chance. This is it. It's Jesus. And if you reject this, and we're going to see what happens when you reject that, right? Take you a couple other places that kind of further cement this way of thinking here. Paul in Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 18 it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and un- unrighteousness of men, right? Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the line I want you to see. Suppress the truth. The Pharisees knew the truth, and they suppressed it. I mean, that, can you imagine? And, and what, what I will say to you this morning is that I think everybody that sits in this sanctuary week after week knows the truth because we've said it. And so the, the question is now, are you suppressing that truth? Are you refusing to believe that truth? That's another way we call suppressing it. So yesterday at um, Marty Wal- Walder's uh, memorial here, um, I, I said and I shared that, you know, Marty had the opportunity to look mortality right in the face. And so... I spoke about what is true and what is not true, and I was, I was, I was very clear what the Bible teaches about that, that the truth is that we're all going to die. We're all sinful. We all deserve God's judgment. God has made this beautiful way possible in Christ to be forgiven. The shedding of His blood, the work of the cross, and we can be made right. Our conscience can be made pure and clear, and, and that's true. But that's, that's the truth. There is no other way. And I was very clear with everybody yesterday. And I don't know who's a believer in that group, just like I don't know here today. But I wanted to be clear. Because one of the things I love about Scripture, the more I study, is it is clear. It is clear. We, we think, oh, well, you know, you always hear people say, well, that's just an interpretation of this. If you study Scripture, yes, there are some verses that are hard to understand. But by and large, Scripture is blatantly clear. I I always go back to this, and you've heard me say this many times. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve, well, Adam was there. It was before Eve was there. And what did God tell Adam? You eat of that tree, you're going to (laughs) die. Like, okay. um, Well, the interpretation, what was the interpretation? No, I don't think we need any work on interpretation, what the Greek means. It means if you eat of that tree, you die. And, And I think what the author is just trying to say here, he's trying to be very clear. Right? Romans, they're in... Chapter 1 goes on in verse 21. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. There it is. They knew him, but they chose not to yield their life. They choose not to honor him, to, give, to be obedient to him, to, to any way. They just chose not to do that. And I think we have people in the church today, not just our church, I mean the church around the world that... That live in that place. They, they come to church for all sorts of reasons, moral reasons, and, and, and different reasons, family reasons, and they're suppressing the truth. And I just have a, you know, and you guys have heard me preach enough, I just have a, a burden to make sure that we're clear about that, because I will stand before the Lord one day and probably say, did you make it clear? Did you make my word clear? I mean, it is clear, but did you convey it clearly? And so I want to be very clear all right, so the first warning is for those who just completely reject the gospel and deny it, deny the truth. And I think contextually that's what the author's really trying to tell his guys, this, these people that he's listened to, or these, these Hebrews that are, are, you know, deciding whether they're going to follow Christ or not. He's just being very clear. You stay in the past, old ways, there's no sacrifice remaining. And here's where I'm going to parse it out a little bit more for you. Because my guess is, as many of you hopefully aren't there. Like, you're here today, so at some level I hope that you understand who Christ is and you want to believe or you do believe or whatever. But, but here's, here's where I'm going to parse it out a little bit more. Here's the second warning. I think he gives a warning of a hard heart. It says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, do you know anyone that has confessed to be a believer, that has heard the gospel, that is living in willful sin and enjoying it. I mean, like, no, they're not, they're not, they're not, maybe there's conviction about it, we don't know, but it's seemingly from the outside, we're looking at the fruit and saying, no, they're just, they're just running headlong into it, right? And they, they want it, they're not, they're not convicted by it, that we see, they're not repentful, we don't see it. Yeah, I think there are. I think I've known people in my life that have been that way, and so the question here becomes, is this also a warning for those who today in the church have a false understanding of doctrine? They have a, they're, they're, they're deceived by what they believe. They think that if they've attended church or they got baptized or, or they, they, they checked a box, then they're good, but they can live however they want. And I think that the, that can be made to see this for us. That, that's a hard heart. And, and if they go on sinning deliberately, the question is, have they really ever come to know Christ? That's the question. And that's the burden for me today with, with, with preaching every week and talking to people. I, I know that it is the Lord who has to work and, and bring death to life. I, I get that. But he wants us to be clear about his scripture, about what he says, about what the doctrine says. And so many in the church around the country today, they've watered that down and they're not clear. It's easy believism. Everybody can come and just be authentic or be genuine and love people and you're there and that's no that's not what the scripture says the author of hebrews starts to dive into that in the first two chapters of the book or his letter chapter 2 verse 1 he says this therefore we must pay close attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it i remember preaching about that a few months ago the author is saying we need to pay close attention lest we may drift see the, the world is always asking us to drift why do we need to get together and stir one another up? Because we drift. Absolutely. We get sucked back. And you say, well, but I'm, I'm a Christian. And I'm saying, yep, but no one knows until you finish the race. That's what the scripture tells, tells us. Paul says we had to finish the race. That's how we know. We, you don't know that I'm going to finish the race. I, I was joking first service. I said, maybe next week it won't show up and I'll be in Las Vegas. And I just You'll see me on the news, you know, arrested. Who knows, right? I'm just living for the world, right? Terry would not do that, just so you know. You don't know. You don't know that I don't drift away. And you say, well, but you're saved, Pastor Raleigh. Not if I do that. Then I've never really been born again. I've just been a charlatan up here saying that I'm this way and I'm not. And I think that we need to wrestle with those things because we want to finish. And that's exactly what he's saying. That's why you got to meet together. So we got to stir one another up. And it's all the more as the day is approaching. It's critical that you're doing this for each other and that you're building a community and you're holding each other accountable and you're admonishing one another because it is so important that you do not let anyone drift away. In fact, James chapter five, at the very last verse, he talks about anyone that brings someone back from a sin saves their soul. I believe that's referring to someone who's drifting, right? And, and if we're not being real with each other, if we're not living a life that is open and honest with each other, That's not helping. He goes on Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, with the same theme. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. What is it going to say? Leading you to fall away from the living God. See this idea of being falling away again. You say, Well, these, these people came. No, we've heard. I mean, how many people? And once again, only God knows who's saved, who's not. Only God, I mean, I'm not saying just because you went to church, you're no longer there, but I can tell you that in this church, we've had thousands and thousands of people come through here and hear the gospel. And there's only 300, of, we'll say, of you that have stayed. Now hopefully they are in other churches, they're growing. My concern is, is that many are not. They've heard the gospel. They've heard it. They've received it in the sense they've heard it. They under, they know, they've heard the truth. And then they walk away. They walk away. And they live continually in a sinful life. I think the author's just showing that, look, that is possible. And so that's why we tell you that you need to be here. You need to be involved. You need to be in a small group. You need to be, uh, you know, in, in connection, in ministry, together. You need to be sharing with people in your life. Where do we see this else in Scripture? I'm not going to read these passages completely, but the parable of the sower found in the Gospels. There's obviously, Jesus is talking about sowing the seed, and that's the idea of the word, and it goes into the soil, which is our heart, and and, and the first one, it goes along the path, and it doesn't even take root. The one I want to point you to, though, or the two I want to point you to is the ones that take root, the first one in rocky soil. And it says, and it springs up, and it, it begins to look like something, right? So, Picture this. It's someone that comes to church. They're here for a month or two or three. Who knows? And, and there's some things springing up. There's some things that are happening in their life. You think, wow, the, the gospel is getting root there, and the next thing you know, they're gone. Well, maybe it's because, as the Scripture says in Matthew 13, endures for a little while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Maybe he had some friends that parents... A spouse persecuted him somewhat, so to speak, for believing, for going to church, and he fell back. Scripture says that's what happens. That's what happens. I, I, I know people that I probably would probably fall in that category. He goes on there and says, well, now there's another type of soil. And what is that one? It says, this one who hears the word but cares, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Here I think he's talking about wealth and the deception of of self-sufficiency and wealth, and and it just just chokes out, right? I don't want to leave those things. I I, I want those things, and, and it's nothing wrong with having some things, but when it begins to choke out our relationship with Christ, our understanding, our surrendering to Christ... It's, it's, it leads us astray. It, it bears no fruit. It's unfruitful. And what does the Scripture say about the tree that bears no fruit? Cut it down, and it's thrown into the fire. Once again, very clear. Jesus is not saying, well, you know, we'll, we'll fertilize it a little bit. We'll give it a couple of years. We'll, you know, no. No, we cut it down, and we throw it in the fire. And you're going to see here in just a moment that that's where the author kind of goes. And so there's two big warnings. A complete rejection of Christ, and then there's a warning of a hard heart. And so, this morning I would ask you: Do you, if you, if you are having willful sin in your life, and I'm talking about continual, unrepentant um, desire, almost a gleefulness of, of continuing to sin, not have any conviction about it? I think this warning is for you. I think it is to say. There's no sacrifice for your sins. If you can live that way, you're really rejecting Christ. Because when we come to Christ, I believe we're made a new creation. Something's transformed us. And if something's transformed us, we should not want to sin. Our flesh is still going to struggle. But we should be a new creation that's moving away from sin. I am not the same guy I was 30 years ago. By God's grace, he's continuing to sanctify me. And I think that's true for many of you. But if you've come profess Christ and you've not moved... You're still living in willful sin. You're still there. Or you professed Christ at one point, you moved a little bit, and now you've fallen back and you're just living in willful sin. I think this ominous warning is for you. So what do we see then? What's the next warning? A warning of judgment. Obviously a warning is not a big deal unless there's something that follows after that. Right? What's the warning of? The warning is of judgment. Right? This kind of brings it home. So it says there there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, in verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now we're getting to the heat of the thing, right? Literally. I mean, what he's saying here is, is that you should expect a fearful, there should be a fearful expectation of judgment. it's it's not unclear. You should expect this. If you're living this way, you should expect this. That's what he's telling his readers. He's saying, look, if you stay with the Old Testament, if you stay with the animal sacrifices, and you, you do not believe Christ is the one, and you keep on sinning, I just want to be clear, you should have a fearful expectation of judgment. That's what's coming, right? That's what's coming. And then he just adds, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, one of the things that we don't have the the same privilege maybe of, of understanding, is that in this culture, in this time, the Hebrews knew what God did. He killed the, you know, and we know, but they were closer tied to it. He killed all of the Egyptians, flooded them. He brought the plagues on Egypt, right? He, he, he was the, the pillar of fire, at night over the tabernacle, right? The the priests knew that if they went in and they didn't wash ceremonially properly, they could be struck dead. No one could touch things. They understood the fearful wrath of God, the just, I might add, wrath of God. And so when he says, you should expect a, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, they understood what that meant. Today, we don't have an appreciation of that. Jesus and God has just become a kind of an added thing to our life and we're not afraid. We have no fearful expectation of him. He's, oh, he's a God of love. He would never do any of that kind of stuff. Even people in the church feel that way in their theology. All through scripture. Do you know God flooded the entire world once because of sin? Do you believe that? He struck down Ananias and Sapphira for lying. Now, I'm not saying that, that we should be afraid in the sense if we're, if we're in Christ, we should have no fear at all, and we're going to get to that. But I think what the author is trying to say is that you should have a, a fearful expectation of judgment if you deny Christ, if you are not living for him, if you've not been born again, then you should be here. This is why it's such an ominous warning. Take a couple other places in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. This is Paul saying, he says, but because of your heart and... Impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's a righteous judgment. If your heart is hard, you're storing up wrath for yourself. It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's a little bit like, um, you know, we used to, I used to work for um, Emory Worldwide and UPS and, and, you know, I had to fire some people and, we you know, you've heard this from supervisors. I don't fire anybody. They fire themselves. <laughs> you know, they, 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 they fire themselves. They do what they know they're not supposed to do. I think what he's saying here, says, look, you have a hard heart. You're storing up wrath for yourself. God's wrath is, is not seeking you out. You are, you're stepping underneath it. You're deciding to step under his righteous judgment by your disobedience. It goes on in Romans chapter 2, verse 8. It says, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. A lot of people think Paul wrote, the book of Hebrews, and it's possible because some of the verbiage and how he writes is similar at times. So the question there is, is those who are self-seeking do not obey the truth. Okay, so is a perfect obedience necessary for salvation? No. So because some may argue, say, well, see, you have, that's a work. You have to obey, and if I don't obey, then God's going to have wrath and fury for me. No, that's that's not what Paul is saying. He says, look, if you're living in willful sin, this is, what, this is really what the Scripture talks about, a willful disobedience to God. D- d- you're desiring to sin. You want to sin. You don't feel bad about your sin. You're not remorseful. There's no conviction. If that's you and you do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, if that's what's driving you, there will be wrath and fury. It's that simple. I want to take you all the way to the end of Scripture now in Revelation chapter 19, kind of bring this home, this idea of a warning of judgment Chapter 19, verse 14 and 15. It says, In the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with uh, with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. See, a perfect holy God not only has to judge sin, he is not going to allow it. He's he's not going to allow sinful people to dictate anything to him. He's going to, he's holy, he's just. He has to punish it. There's no way. It just says he's going to tread out the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. God is going to, to end sin against him, he's going to, Bring it home. He's going to wrap it up. It's going to be over. There will be no more sin. He's going to do away with it. Rightly so. Justly so. Let's go on to verse 28 in our passage. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So now he's, he's tapping back into their knowledge of, of history, of, of the culture they've been in, right? Right? He's talking about the law of Moses. He says, anyone who sets aside the law of Moses, what does that mean to set this aside the law of Moses? He's saying, look, the Ten Commandments have been given. That's how they're supposed to live. And they say, you know what? I'm going to set that aside. I'm going to live how I want. He said, you do that, right? You do that. You'll die without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, now that is a quote that's being referenced back in actually 17, Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 17, verse 6. So what, what is it saying there? It says, back in the Old Testament... If you were an Israelite and you were to live under the law. Now, that didn't mean that they didn't sin. They sinned. In fact, we've been talking about that. The whole tabernacle was this idea of people sin and there was a confession and and we bring an animal and all that stuff. There was unintentional sin. There was some, some willful sin. But if you lived a life of sin, if you were believing in other gods and you were worshiping idols, you know what happened? If there was two or three people that could testify that that was you, they would take you outside the camp and stone you and kill you. They're not going to, it's not going to take place in Israel, right? Now, unfortunately, many in Israel went south, and God brought judgment on the whole nation multiple times, right? But part of the part of the law there was is that God was not going to tolerate that type of rebellion in His people. And so, when He tells them here, does anyone set aside the law of Moses? He's he's tapping them back into saying, "Do you know? Do you remember how we've how God has asked us to handle these things when people are disobedient?" They die without mercy. Mercy is this idea that we get something, we don't get what we deserve. All of us deserve death, and yet God doesn't give it to us. There's mercy right now. On the evidence of two or three witnesses. It goes on here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. Now, so now he's he's painted the picture, right? He said, Look, there's a fearful expectation of judgment if if you don't, if you reject Christ, if you reject him. If you set aside the the law of Moses, anybody dies without mercy? And then he says this. How much worse punishment. Now he's comparing it to those who set aside the law of Moses because that's what they're familiar with. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? He's saying, look. If that's what happened, if you just set the law of God aside, how much more now that God has sent his son to die for us, and we, he's very specific here, trample him underfoot. This idea in the, in the culture there, um, if you raised your foot, I believe, and, and this idea that you were signifying that something was underneath you, was underneath your foot, it was, it was a really a, a derogatory term. Right? This idea, he says, if you've trampled the Son of God underfoot, you've rejected him hands out, right? Outrightly. If you profane the blood of the covenant, what does that mean, you've profaned the blood of the covenant? We've spent weeks now talking about the importance of the blood of Christ, how how it sanctifies us, how it cleanses us, how it purifies our conscience, how important it was, how his blood was perfect because he was sinless. And it's so different than all the other blood of the goats and the bulls and the lambs and all of those things. And he says, if you're going to say that it's just like everybody else's blood, you've profaned it. If you're saying that it has no power beyond the rest of the bulls, it's just a covering, it's not a purification, then you profaned it. So, if you've trampled underfoot the Son of God and have profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace, the Spirit of God is outraged with your indignation and your rejection. I mean, think about that for a minute. God comes a man. I mean, first of all, we're all in sin, we all deserve death. And God comes a man and lives a sinless life and dies for us and then offers himself to us to be forgiven. And we reject that. Just feel that. We reject that. Nope, not good enough. Don't want it. The author is just saying, look, if this happened in the Old Testament just because you set the law aside, but now God sends his his son and dies for you and you reject that, how much worse punishment do you think you deserve? The spirit of God is outraged at it. He was on there in verse 30 and 31. He says, for we know him who said. Now, what do you mean we know him? He's saying, Look, guys, we have a whole history. Our scriptures are filled with what God has done and, and his vengeance and how he's, he's tried to make right and, and the kings that he's raised and took down and, and because they were disobedient. It says, for we, we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Now, that's a quote also from Scripture. It's back in Deuteronomy. Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. This idea that, do we have any fear of falling into the hands of a holy God? In other words, is there any reservation is there any pause when we think about sin, when we think about especially willfully sinning? Is, is there any? See, many in the church I don't think even feel that. Now, I'm not saying that we should walk around fearing God if we're believers, but we should have a healthy respect of who God is. In the last 20, 30 years, Jesus has become our buddy. I've heard it in, in churches I mean, sometimes even in, in children's ministry, we've, we've kind of taken that approach at times. I, I just think that's not healthy. He is, he's clearly our friend. He's our, he's our Messiah and our Savior. He's our Lord and our Master. He's not our buddy. It's just not the way to, to have this right understanding of who God is. He's holy. He loves us. He's died for us. What a beautiful thing. All right. Three serious warnings, a warning of complete rejection of Christ, a warning of a hard heart, a warning of judgment. Okay, we're going to move pretty quickly now through these next three. Here are three strong encouragements, three strong encouragements. It says in verse 32 through 34, it says, but recall the former days when, when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes, being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. All right, so lots, lots there. So what are we seeing? First, I think that what the, what the point here is, is that he's encouraging us to persevere. He's encouraging his church, those who believe. He's telling these people that he's writing to, and I think it goes to us. He's saying, look, if you believe, you're going to need to persevere, and I want to encourage you with that. And I want to help you by recalling when you first came to Christ, when you first heard the truth of the gospel, but recall the former days when you were enlightened. In other words, when you, this takes us back to chapter six a little bit, when they were enlightened with the gospel and and they were on fire. Do you you remember today, if, if you're a Christ follower, you may remember the time that you found out that you... Could be forgiven, and that God was saving you and going to forgive you of your sins and the passion and the the joy that you felt at that moment. And He's taking them back there because, see, we drift even in our Christian walk. He wants us to recall those former days. And He says, and when that happened, you had to endure a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And see, here once again, I'm concerned that many in the church, myself included at times, we don't understand what reproach is. We don't understand what um, afflictions are in the sense of because we're standing up for Christ, we clearly understand the agony of losing people in our life and, and health issues and all those things. But that's not what he's talking about here. We're not, these people are not suffering because of health issues. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the affliction for standing up for Christ and being persecuted for it. And I would say that the reason that we don't have that one is because we live in a, a fairly free country anymore. It's, it's you know it's obviously always in flex, um, but many of us is because we don't really live for Christ like we should. And I'm not saying that we're not believers. Don't I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we don't really stand for Christ. We don't mention him, and we don't talk about him publicly, especially. Maybe here at church we can talk about him. You know, we can talk about Jesus and my relationship with Jesus, how Jesus changed my life. And you walk out those doors, you see your friends, you see your neighbors, you see people at the store. That's not, that conversation's not coming up. You don't hear, you know, you don't hear Jesus being talked about at the workplace a whole lot. And say, well, we're not allowed to, but I think that's a cover for us, right? Oh, I'm not allowed to. That's a policy. I can't do that. Well, I don't care if it's a policy or not. We probably wouldn't do it. And look, I struggle with it too. I struggle with it too. So I just want to share one with you. And and I'm not sharing this for... um, for prideful purposes, because um, uh, I'm trying to be very transparent, the fact that this, this is what was going through my head. So a few days ago, uh, I'm at McMacken's, and uh, I go to the meat counter, and I get a, uh, a pound of chipped ham, and, and I tell the lady what I want, and, and she starts to get it, and I, I kind of walk away. I go over to the, uh, I'm a meat lover, I go over and go to the pork chops uh, on the, uh, the meat counter there, the, the meat cooler and I'm looking for pork chops, and this guy comes over. He looks a lot like me. He's got gray hair, gray beard, and um, he says, are, are you a pastor? I'm like, well, that's kind of creepy, and I said, yeah, I am, and, and I think he probably heard a conversation I was having with somebody at the meat counter, and I think that person knew me and may have said, hey, pastor, how are you doing? And so, and I said, yes, I am. He says, can I talk to you for a minute? I'm like, sure. Half hour, standing there holding pork chops, okay, in my hand, <laughs> like, Okay, I really wanted to set him down, but I held him for the whole half hour. And he just begins to pour his heart out. His wife, he's married. His wife has had two strokes. She's basically on a feeding tube. He's beside himself. It's the love of his life. He's a believer. I don't know that he's attending church anywhere, but he says he loves the Lord. He's quoting Scripture. I mean, he, he definitely seems like he loves the Lord, and, and we're talking. And, and people are walking by, and people—you know, we're having to move out of the way because somebody else wants pork chops. You know what I mean? And... Um, and we're talking verbally about Christ, and we're quoting Scripture to each other. And I'm very aware that there are people around. <laughs> I'm not ashamed, but I'm very aware that, like, this doesn't happen here in the grocery store with me very often, right? I'm not, and I'm aware that, wonder what people are thinking as they're going by, right? And I'm thinking to myself, we're going to pray before this is over. I knew that was coming, right? And people are going to be there wondering, what are they doing, right? Sure enough, we've kind of moved over the aisle, and we're at the end of the cereal aisle there, I think. And there's, you know, there. And next thing you know, we've got our arms around each other. We're praying out loud. We're, we're, we're praying for his wife. We're praying for God to just be faithful. And he's asking for mercy for his wife, and that he will just take his wife home because it's been a hard road. We talked about where she was with the Lord and what he thought. And, and so we prayed for that, and we got done. And, and I was just like, this is the way it should be this is how I should be living my life, right? And yet, even for me, I felt like, ooh, but I don't step out there, man. I am hoping that I can get into IGA and get out before anybody realizes I'm there a lot of times, right? And I'm like, man, that's not the where the Lord wants us. So I go back to the meat counter and, but I'm on fire at this particular point because the Lord has stirred me up. The sky has stirred me up. And so I'm talking to the ladies behind the meat counter, and we're talking about Jesus, and it's it's great, and we're proclaiming, and we're encouraging one another. We're stirring each other up there. And, and so that I go home. I've never met this man. The next day, he texts me, and he says, "Would you?" because we exchanged emails and, or text numbers. The next day, he texts me, and he says, um, I'm on my way home from work. I think he had to leave early. My wife may be getting ready to pass. Now wait a minute. We just prayed for mercy the day before in the center of McMackins that God would take her home. Later that night he texts me, he says, The Lord took my wife home. He said, Hallelujah. He said, Thank you, brother. Now I didn't do anything. I was faithful. I was willing to step out. Didn't care about what anybody thought. I mean I did, but I didn't, right? I recognize that I was in an unfamiliar place in my walk and my sharing in a public place. And I think what he's saying here in verse 32 is he says, being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. What if someone would have walked by and says, hey, would you guys not do that? Don't, don't do that here. You're, you're in the way of the Rice Krispies. Can you move, please? I don't like you Christians taking up the aisle. You know what I mean? Right? Can you, can you keep that to the church? That's not for this public place. Now, by God's grace, we'd live in a community that doesn't happen, but in some communities that could happen. We could be ridiculed for doing that, right? But that, by God's grace, that wasn't what happened, obviously. But I think that's what he's saying, and I'm just saying if we lived more like that, I think that we would have more reproach and ridicule and affliction in our life if we did that. Now, I'm not saying to break the rules at, church, or at, at your job and, and do things you're not supposed to do, but if we were really talking about Jesus, then we would be treated differently, I think, in the world. And here in this, in this century, in this first century, when you followed Jesus, your p- parents probably disowned you possibly. You were excommunicated. You were, you were on the bad list. You didn't have friends anymore. You were put out. We see that in the Muslim community, but we as Christians don't really understand that. I've been talking to Mr. and Mrs. Smith some over in in Africa. And, 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 you know, if someone comes to Christ, that's a huge decision that they're making because they know they're going to lose their family. Maybe their whole community is going to shun them. And we as Christians, we don't understand that. And yet we don't even live that way in a place that we could and probably have no persecution. Philippians chapter 1 Verse 29, Paul says this. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's not meaning that we get cancer and we suffer for Christ's sake. We we suffer well in those moments. But here what he's talking about is that we're suffering for the cause of Christ. For him. For standing up for him. Luke chapter 6 verse 22 Luke writes, he says, blessed are you when people hate you and, and they exclude you and they revile you and spurn your name as evil. They you got to finish that on the account of the Son of Man. Because people do that to me all the time, right? But it's, no, it's, it's this idea that we're doing it for the Son of Man. This idea that, that I've done this and that's what we're a blessing for if we stand for him in those moments. And I just want to push into you guys. These are, these are things to encourage you that we should be persevering. We should be pushing into these things. You know, the Scripture says that we are salt and light. The Scripture, what, what did Jesus say? You know, you don't put a light and put a basket over it. So when you go to IGA, you don't put a basket over yourself and walk around like nobody knows who you are and, and you're not really sharing the gospel with anybody. You don't do that at work. You don't do that at your home. You don't do that at the soccer field, at school, college, wherever you are. You don't say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to put a basket over me so no one knows. We're salt. We're supposed to persevere. We're supposed to, we're supposed to be flavorful and preserve the culture. Well, we can't do that if we're not speaking about him and sharing the gospel. All right, got to keep going. Number two, encourage to keep our eyes on heaven is the sex thing, next thing we're encouraged to do. Encourage to keep our eyes on heaven. In verse four, 34, the second part of it says, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. See, we, we, we're not sure what's happening here, but it's possible that they were confiscating property because people were becoming Christians and, and maybe family was doing it. We're not sure. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better prof- possession and an abiding one. What's he saying there? He says, look, if you know that God has, has went to prepare a place for us and he's got everything for us, we can let all of this stuff go. That doesn't mean that we just give it away. It doesn't mean that we don't value it. But he says we shouldn't hold on to it. We should not. We should not so desire it. If it if it goes, and I'm standing for Christ, and that's why I lose it. So be it. So be it. Philippians chapter three, verse seven and eight. I love how Paul says it this way. He says, but now Paul here is really talking about his his uh, his reputation. But I think this applies. It says, but for whatever gain I had, he's talking about he's a a Hebrew of Hebrews and a Pharisee. He says, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Would you give away everything if it meant having Christ? Would you give away all the awards, the money, the accolades, the fame, the friends, if the only way you could do that was to gain Christ? That's the challenge for us. Now, by God's grace, that's, he's put us in a family that we, do, we don't have to give away all our friends because we're here. But are you living in a way that honors the Lord? Are you risking anything Is everything else rubbish to you if it's in the way of gaining Christ? Verse 35 and 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. Amen to that. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He's just saying, look, don't throw away your confidence. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to endure, but these things are true. I will tell you that I've really been encouraged these last three, four months as we've been going through the book of Hebrews. I'm just so convinced. I'm, I've been convinced for years, but I'm so convinced of the gospel and who God is after we've been studying this whole thing about what God has done through the sacrificial system, and then Jesus comes and fulfills it perfectly. I'm that, that, no one could have made that up. It's perfect. He meets everything. It's rooted in the Old Testament, thousands of years earlier. It's all there. It's all solid. There will be no excuse. But we need endurance nonetheless. Matthew, Jesus says it this way in chapter 5, verse 12, Sermon on the Mount. He says, Rejoice and me, glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets. Who were before you. He says, look, you're in good company. <laughs> the prophets were persecuted. They had nothing. They were persecuted. Some of them were stoned, but your reward's in heaven. So rejoice. In fact, your reward is great in heaven. Don't hold on to these things. All right, third thing as we close. The third encouragement. He encourages us to trust in his return, to trust in his return. Now this quote he's getting ready to make is an Old Testament quote. I think he's mixing Habakkuk, possibly, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, possibly some in Isaiah. He's making a point here. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He says, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. That's talking about Christ's return, the Messiah. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back... My soul has no pleasure in him. So we're encouraged to trust in Christ's return. The author is saying, look, you have to endure. These are the, these are the challenges. These are the warnings. But if you believe, you're going to have to endure. You need to keep your eyes focused on heaven, right? The riches that are there, what God has in store. And, and then trust that he's going to return. This is, this is not for naught. He's coming back. Maybe not in our lifetime, but he's coming back. And if you shrink back, it says, my soul has no pleasure in the person that shrinks back. So persevere. He's just encouraging. He's reminding them of the Old Testament that this has been an ongoing exhortation by God for many years. And then he concludes with verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's reminding them and encouraging them now, And I pray that that is an encouragement to you today. I would say, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve our souls. So what's the next step? I would say it's really a takeaway this morning. What's the takeaway? What can we gather and glean from what we've just studied is that we can be confident in Christ. That's really what he's saying. He says there's this warning that if you're not in Christ, you should not be confident. You cannot. Not, should not be confident. In fact, you should have a fearful expectation of judgment if you're not in Christ. But if you're in Christ, you can be confident in Christ. Do not throw your confidence away. You should be confident in Christ. Absolutely. He has died. He's made a way for us. He's shed his perfect blood for us. He's purified our sin. He's, he's cleared our conscience. He's done all of those things. And the way that we know that we can have a confidence there is that we can see what he's done. But if we're living a willful, sinful life, if we reject that, we should not have a confidence because, see, we're not in Christ at that moment. I believe if we're living willfully in sin, we need to wonder whether we've really been born again. I'll leave you with James chapter one verse two through four. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So I want to just expand upon that before I close in prayer. Count it all joys, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. There's more standing. These are trials for Christ that they're, we're suffering, but we're suffering for him. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, this idea of perseverance. And what is the work then? What's the value of that perseverance and that steadfastness? Let steadfastness have its full effect. So it has an effect on us when we do this. It changes us. It, it demonstrates something in us. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Does that mean I can be perfect? No. I it's think like it's what it's saying This is when you step out, you will be in Christ and you will be perfect. And you will lack nothing because Christ is going to provide. The Father is going to provide. Your rewards are going to be great in heaven. You lack nothing. So don't think that you're giving something up because you're not. You're giving up something that's temporal, that's not going to last, to gain something that's eternally valuable. And lack nothing. So this morning as we close or this afternoon as we close and you go from this place, I would encourage you to heed the warning. If you have willful sin in your life that you are perpetually living in and, and and not repentful of and not feeling convicted of, you need to get before the Lord and you need to repent. You need to come, maybe you need to ask him to save you. Maybe you realize at the end of this that man, I'm living in willful sin. I really don't have a relationship with Christ. I've just been going to church. Maybe that's where you need to go, and you need to ask God to save you and and deliver you from that. doesn't mean that we'll live perfectly. No one's living perfect here. I'm not perfect. That's not what the point is. And then for those of us that are born again and we're believers, we need to be confident in our walk with Christ. Aware of the warnings, aware of the the falling back. That's why we gather. That's why we don't neglect meeting together. That's why we should spur one another on. That's what's important about meeting together in life groups and D groups and and being here in men's ministry and women's ministry and children's ministry. It's the fact that we need to hold each other accountable so that we can remind each other of our confidence in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, these warnings are ominous. For those who do not believe or that are misled in their faith and thinking that if they check a few boxes here or there that that means that they're believers and that they're walking with you but yet they're living a life of willful unrepentant sin father would help us to take those warnings seriously father they are ominous they are clear You want your children to have confidence in our salvation. You want us to have an assurance. And we can have that assurance when we are confident in Christ and when we are living for him, when we hate our sin and we are struggling but we are repentful and we are seeking at ways to kill it. And so, Lord, we thank you for the confidence that we have. We thank you for the promise of your return. We thank you for the promise of of being washed clean by the blood. Lord, I want to thank you for the encouragement that we give each other as the body of Christ. May we continue to stir one another up to good works because of our confidence in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.